Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus. We pray that as we look together at this passage today that you'll help us to understand what it means, what it is teaching us about ourselves and about you. Help us to respond rightly to your word, living lives that are pleasing to you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The church is full of hypocrites, so we're told. Church people put on a show of piety on Sundays. It's all nice clothes and nice smiles and Sunday best. But for the rest of the week, they're no better than anybody else. Now, I've told you before what I say when people tell me the church is full of hypocrites. I say, not our church. Our church is barely half full. There's uh, plenty of room for more. It's a silly thing to say that the church is full of hypocrites. Everyone's a hypocrite. Everyone wants to make other people think that they are better than they are. It's human nature. In fact, I'm finding more and more that uh, hypocrisy is seen as even acceptable in many circles now. Now we're told that the so-called private lives of public figures is irrelevant. Doesn't matter that they're adulterers and gamblers and homosexuals and drunks. As long as they do a good job, it's fine for them to be our judges and politicians and public role models. It's fine for them to establish public policy because, so the argument goes, who they are in private is irrelevant to their public role. Their public face doesn't have to match their private reality. Hypocrisy is a human problem. It's not just a church problem. But still, you've got to admit, hypocrisy is a problem in churches. I think what's behind it is this. Christians are supposed to be good people. Christians are supposed to be moral and kind. Christians are supposed to be generous. Christians are supposed to have peace and joy and love. But real Christians, like you and me, we struggle, don't we? Yes, we've got the Holy Spirit. Yes, by God's grace, we can see God at work in our lives. But we are far from what we should be. We sin. We struggle with the same greed and lust as other people. We get tired. We get cranky. We suffer from physical and mental sickness. It's hard for people like us to live up to the model of a godly Christian. It's impossible this side of heaven for us to do it perfectly. And so what we do, we fake it. We put on a facade. We pretend that we are godly to make other people think that we're going along fine. You all know about the amazing car park miracle that I keep talking about. You're on your way to the church, you've been fighting with the kids all morning, everyone's cranky, everyone's rude, but you arrive in the church car park and it's a miracle. Suddenly we're a nice Christian family, all happy, happy, joy, joy. It's hard to be a real Christian. And so rather than admitting that it's tough, rather than repenting, rather than going back to the gospel, rather than working harder, rather than praying for each other, rather than all that tough stuff, 
we just fake it. Put on a godly smile for an hour a week on Sundays and then breathe a sigh of relief when it's all over. When we're back to reality where you don't have to try so hard to be nice. It's easy to do, isn't it? We all do it to some extent. But let's call it what it is. It's hypocrisy. Well, last week in the book of Acts, we saw God's people were facing persecution. In response, they prayed. And you remember, God himself came to be with them. Look with me at Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. God came to dwell with his people. The Holy Spirit came on the believers again, as he did back in Pentecost, and the Spirit made a difference. First, we see the believers were united. United in their purpose to live for Jesus and, and boldly tell other people about him. Like a team with their eye on the prize, they worked together. Chapter 4 and verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. It's interesting, you know, that the churches that are the most mission-minded, the churches that are most outward-focused, are usually the most harmonious churches. As people work together to tell the world about Jesus, as they work for a purpose beyond themselves, they're united. They're able to put aside petty disputes, even not-so-petty disputes, because they're focused on the greater goal. But once a church gets insular... Once the church just starts focusing in on itself, that's when you start to get fights about property and style and traditions and, and anything else you can think of. Once people take their eye off the goal, they've got nothing better to do than to argue. The early church was united, united in heart and mind, filled with the Spirit, intent on speaking the word of God boldly. They found themselves united. And they were also generous. As they focused together on their mission, they shared like a family. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, they looked after each other like a well-functioning team. Halfway through verse 32. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. And we see there also the apostles kept on with their ministry, sharing their eyewitness testimony, telling people, look, we saw Jesus alive, we saw him dead, we saw him alive again. Verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. And, and here in this spirit-filled church, as they shared like a family, some people showed extreme generosity. They even sold property and gave the proceeds to the church to distribute to the needy, to the extent that there were no needy Christians, as God promised for the promised land in the Old Testament. Verse 34. There were no needy persons among them, for from, from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. It's a really attractive picture, don't you think? This united, generous, focused, mission-minded, spirit-filled church. 
But Luke now goes on to nuance the picture a bit. He gives two examples of the kind of generosity that he's been talking about. First a positive example, but then also he gives a negative example. First you've got your positive example. This is the, the man Joseph. They call him Barnabas. He sells a field he owns and he gives the money for the needy. Verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostle called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. It's a radically generous act, isn't it? He's uh, sold the house up in Kilcare and given the money. And uh, as we'll see later on, Barnabas went on to be a key figure in the early church. He became a missionary, unencumbered by all his... uh, Sydney property, he was able to uh, just get off and disappear. He, he became a mentor and an advocate and a partner for the Apostle Paul, a very important person later on in the book of Acts. And together he and Paul were vital in the spread of Christianity beyond Judaism and into the Gentile world. We've got a lot to thank Barnabas for. He loved God's people. He was willing to put his wallet on the line. In fact, he was willing to put his whole life on the line for God's people. That's our positive example. But the next example is not quite so positive, to say the least. There's a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. They're part of the church, and like Barnabas, they do a very generous thing. They sell a piece of property, and they give the money to the apostles to be given to the needy. Now, Ananias and Sapphira decide that they don't want to give all the money from the sale to the church but they want to take credit for giving all the money to the church. So people will think how generous and godly they are. So they sell the property, they keep some of the money, they give some to the apostles, but they make out that they've given the whole amount. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, it's still a very generous thing to do, isn't it? It's still half the property in Kilcare. And let's face it, we have all felt the temptation to exaggerate our godliness, to give the impression that we are more godly, more generous than we actually are. This is really just ordinary garden variety hypocrisy. But the thing is, God's Holy Spirit has come to this church. God himself is dwelling among these people. And if there's one thing God hates, it's hypocrisy. Now somehow Peter knows exactly what they've done and he tells Ananias, he says, you didn't need to sell your property and you didn't need to give all the money, it's your money. The money's not the issue. The issue is that you have lied to God. In lying to the Holy Spirit-filled church, you've lied to the Holy Spirit himself. Verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. 
at that point we have the only example of people being slain in the spirit in the New Testament that I can find. God strikes in swift and deadly judgment. Ananias collapses and dies. Verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. Three hours later, Sapphira comes by. Peter gives her the chance to fess up, but she sticks to the lie. In lying to God's Holy Spirit-filled church, she's lying to God's Holy Spirit. And along with her husband, she faces the immediate judgment of God. Verse 7. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price of the land? Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the man who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. As you can imagine, it caused quite a stir. The church, and this is the first time in, in uh, Acts that the church is called the church, the church is frightened by what God's done, not to, mention, not to mention everyone else who hears what's happened. Verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It's pretty severe, isn't it? Uh, shockingly severe. It's hard to understand quite what's going on here. But I think we can get a clue, we can get a clue to what's going on here, what God is trying to say, if we think back to the Old Testament. Because the key is, God has come to dwell in this church. You may remember back in chapter 1 why they needed the 12 apostles, to get a complete foundation for God to come to his temple. Acts chapter 2, on that day of Pentecost, we saw the Holy Spirit come with a sound like wind, with the appearance of fire coming to rest on the believers. Back in chapter 4, verse 31, straight before this passage, it just, it's just happened again. The place where they were meeting was shaken. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. God has come and he's dwelling in his people, in his church. But here in the book of Acts, it's not the first time that God has come to dwell with his people. Back in the Old Testament, God came to dwell with his people in their tabernacle and then ultimately in their temple. It happened in the Old Testament as well. And in our first reading, we saw one of the key and first times that God came to dwell with his people. It was, uh, it was the time that the priests were just starting their ministry, Aaron and his sons. They offered, for the first time, really, their sacrifices of ordination. They, they, they started the, the beginning of the sacrificial system effectively in the tabernacle and God came to demonstrate that it was all real. Like at Pentecost, he came with fire. On your outline there, I've got Leviticus chapter 9 again. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. God came to that special tent of meeting. That was great news for Israel. It meant the sacrificial system worked. It meant that they were in touch with God. What a privilege to have God with them. 
but straight away you find out that you don't mess around in the presence of God. It's not a privilege that you mess with. That was a lesson that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, learned the hard way. God is holy, and you do not come into his presence lightly. Picking it up there from your outline, Aaron's sons, can you see where I am? Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their senses, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. In the Old Testament, it was clear. God was present in a special way in the tabernacle and the temple. And you don't mess around in the presence of God. That's what's happening here in, Acts, in, uh, in this chapter in Acts. Only now, God's not dwelling in a tent. God's not dwelling in a building. Now God is dwelling in his people. Now the fire of God has come to rest on the Christians. They are filled with God's Holy Spirit. And so here's the point. When you deal with God's people, when you deal with God's church, you are dealing with God's very presence. And you don't mess around in the presence of God. When you deal with God's people, you deal with God's presence. And that's not something you take lightly. Now, now remember the kind of literature we're dealing with here in the book of Acts. This is not necessarily establishing the normal pattern for church life. Acts is just telling us what happened in the early church. This is not didactic literature, this is narrative literature. It's telling us the story. And I don't anticipate that every time someone is hypocritical in church, God will strike them down. I suspect if he did, there wouldn't be too many of us left. I certainly wouldn't be. But can you see in his extreme dealings with Ananias and Sapphira here, like with Nadab and Abihu, God is showing us very clearly how he feels. He is saying, what you do to my church, you do to me. So tread carefully. And that's an idea that's picked up on quite frequently later on. In the book of Acts, you remember, Saul is persecuting the church. Jesus appears to him. What does Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You persecute my church, you persecute me, says Jesus. Or later on in, in Paul's letters, we get uh, the same thing. Paul talks about the extraordinary privilege it is that non-Jews could be welcomed into God's people. And he talks about as being God's temple, built on the foundation of the apostles with Christ Jesus as the chief, as the chief cornerstone. And he writes, it's there on your outline, in Christ, you too, Gentiles, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. He's in us. We're the temple. Or there were the Corinthians. Paul warns them about creating divisions and schisms in the church. And he says this, again it's on your outline. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. 
God doesn't dwell in a place anymore. There is no such thing as the holy land. There is no such thing as a holy or consecrated building or any such rubbish. God dwells in a people. Anyone who sincerely trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. God comes to dwell inside us. We become his temple. And now God is so closely associated with his church that what you do to us, you do to God himself. That is a strong message for those people out there who say, you know, I want to have a relationship with Jesus, but I'm just not interested in the church. You ever heard people say something like that? Yeah, I love Jesus. He was a great guy. I'm just not into organised religion. By the way, I've got an answer for that one too. When people say I'm not into organised religion, I say, great, come to our church. It's complete chaos. Not organised at all. (laughs) But can you see the problem with what people are saying? If you come into relationship with Jesus, you come into relationship with his people. You don't get Jesus without his people. There's no separate heaven for those people who are too arrogant to mix with the rest of us. This is also a clear message for those people who come to church and make promises they've got no intention of keeping. Like people who will stand up here for a baptism and promise that they trust in the Lord Jesus and will bring their children up to love and serve him, but then you never see them again. It's not a joke to stand up and lie to God's church. You are lying to God himself. And this is also a message for us here in the church. When we come to God's people, we come to God's presence. In coming to church this morning, meeting with this motley crew, you've come into the very presence of God. Did you realise that? Not because of this building. God's not present in the building. No, God is present in his people. Those people around you who trust in Jesus, they have the Holy Spirit in them. You're sitting next to the very presence of God. That's pretty special, isn't it? It's a good reason, I would have thought, to to love God's people. You can't pretend to love God when you don't love the people he's dwelling in. It's a good reason, I would have thought, to live in harmony with God's people. To work together as a team. To help each other as Christians. To to help each other tell other people about the Lord Jesus and join us and come into the presence of God. Don't forget about Open Week. Do be inviting people into the presence of God. It's also a good reason for us to share with God's people. To be generous with our time and with our stuff like Barnabas did here in Acts chapter 4. That's not just a, uh, an early church thing. The other day I heard about a couple who wanted to go to Bible college. They'd been planning for years and, and over the years they'd saved up $37,000 to get them through college. Uh, just before they went, the bloke became convinced that he wasn't suitably gifted for ministry. So they went to their minister. They said, this money was for us to go to Bible college. It wasn't for us to buy a house or anything like that. It was to put us through college. We're not going. They said, can you please take the money and give it to other people to help them go through Bible college. Radical generosity is not just an early church thing. It's happening today. 
Or what about the way Barnabas basically chucked in his career and his life and went off to tell people about Jesus? That's happening here too, isn't it? There are a number of people here in our church who've given up their comfort, given up their jobs, given up their money, made massive sacrifices. They're training at Bible college. They want to spend their lives serving God's people, proclaiming the message about Jesus. I hope we're looking after them. It's not just an early church thing. It's happening here. It's happening now, today. And can you see? It is an appropriate way for us to deal with God's spirit-filled people, to love them, even with radical generosity. It's an appropriate way to live in the presence of God. We need to think hard about what we give and what we keep. We need to think hard about our generosity to God's people. We need to think hard about our service to God's people because what we do for God's church, we do for God himself. But above all, above all, and this is the final point, above all, God is telling you and me that we need to get real. We need to get real. When we deal with God's spirit-filled church, we are dealing with God's spirit. And God is not fooled by our appearances. God judges on the basis of truth and not show. Now, you might well get away with it here in our church. We are pretty gullible people. If you tell us you're a Christian, if you give the appearance of piety, we'll believe you. But you're not fooling God. And you're not impressing God either. God hates hypocrisy. There is no point putting on a Sunday facade. The Holy Spirit is not in the business of creating hypocrites. The Holy Spirit is in the business of changing lives for real. So we need to be honest with each other. We need to share our lives, share our struggles, share our successes, pray for each other, keep pointing each other back to the forgiveness that's found in the Lord Jesus, encourage each other to live for him, not to appear to live for Jesus, but to actually live for Jesus. When we deal with God's spirit-filled church, we're dealing with God himself. So let's, let's get real with each other. Let's honestly strive to live for Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you haven't just struck us down long ago for our hypocrisy. Lord, thanks for your mercy. Help us to recognise your Holy Spirit in your people. Help us to love your people, help us to serve your people, and help us to be real with your people. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.